0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, "The Pursuit of Happiness," a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Week, um, by the way, so those of you who this affects, uh, middle school class this week is beginning. Uh, the Gospel Project Curriculum, which we've been doing for other classes, but uh, we are now doing it. They have a specific curriculum, which is designed for middle schoolers, and uh, we're doing it. It's a great curriculum. It shows how Jesus is really the focus of all of the scriptures and something we're excited about, uh, beginning this week with the middle schoolers. So those of us who are in here, please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. And it's there that we'll, we'll, we will be continuing our study through this book in our series, which is titled, The Pursuit of Happiness. If you need a Bible to follow along, go ahead and put your hand up in the air. We'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you one. We've got some in the back for you to use. And uh, also, those of you who like to use it on your phone, if you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can look in there. There's some live notes, and you can kind of follow along with what we've got up on the screen. They're on your phone. Take your own notes, all that good stuff. So let's go ahead and pray as we open God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this message that although we are more sinful than we even realize, Lord, we are more loved by you than we could ever dare to dream, dare to imagine. Thank you, Lord, for showing your love for us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, this morning you would use this study and these words that we're going to read from from your word. We pray that you'd use them to help us find our greatest treasure in you. And we pray that that would be true of our lives. And as we do that, Lord, we know that it will produce joy and peace in our lives as well. So, Lord, we ask that as we read your word, you would give us insight into it. And also, you'd help us to put these things into practice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you the question, who are you? What would you answer? What would you say? Now, of course, I'm not just asking your name. What I'm asking is, what is it that makes you who you are? What defines you what is it that gives you your identity now some of you might say you know uh, I'm a parent or I'm an artist or I'm a teacher I'm a wife I'm a husband I'm an athlete I'm a musician but the way that you answer that question of who you are reveals a lot about first of all what you believe gives you value right why you have value as a person but it also reveals where you find your greatest joy The thing is, though, that most people base their identity and find their greatest joy in things which are temporary. And that creates an obvious problem. When you build your identity, when you find your greatest joy in things which are inherently temporary, the obvious problem is this. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you lose that thing upon which you have built your identity? What what are you going to do when that thing which you have found your greatest joy in changes or ends or goes away? Then what will become of you? If you're If you build your identity on being a parent, for example, many people do this. If you find your greatest joy in your children, in your family, then what happens when they move out? Or if for some reason they're no longer a part of your life at some point? Or if perhaps they don't turn out the way that you hoped they would turn out? If you build your identity, if you find your greatest joy in a particular relationship, then what happens if and when that relationship ends? Because ultimately all relationships here on earth do come to an end in one way or another. If you build your identity, if you find your greatest joy in a hobby or a skill that you have or in a profession or a career that you're good at, then what happens when you can no longer do that thing or if that career fails or doesn't work out? then what happens to you when that thing you built your identity upon, when that thing you found your greatest joy in, collapses? Now that kind of thing happens all the time. And what happens is that when that happens to people, their whole world falls apart. They lose their identity and they lose their greatest joy. And it's pretty much inevitable, really, because of the nature of things in this world this is how it's going to end with everything that people build their identities upon or find their greatest joy in. But there is a different way. There is a way to not have that end. And here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul, who happens to be writing from jail in the midst of very difficult circumstances, is telling us how, if you really understand, if you really embrace the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did. For you on the cross, and what that means for you, then you will find a source of identity, and you will find a source of joy, which will be able to to withstand anything that life might throw at you. If you really understand the gospel, you could put it this way: it will give you a bulletproof soul. The title of today's message is Found in Him, and here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going to tell us the story of how he came to find his identity, how he came to find his greatest joy in the gospel, because in his life it wasn't always that way. So he's going to tell us the story of how that happened. And here's what we're going to see in this section. First of all, we're going to talk about true spirituality, then we're going to talk about the work beneath our work. And thirdly, we're going to talk about real rest. So true spirituality, the work beneath our work, and real rest. Let's begin by talking about true spirituality. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. He begins this section by saying, finally, my brothers, which is something you say, you know, when you're about to finish something, finally, right? Here's my final point. By the way, he's like at the 50% mark right now. So that means that Paul is just like every other preacher out there, right? When they're like, this is the last thing I'm going to say, you have probably still got a ways to go. So he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Finding joy in the Lord, that is what this whole letter has been about up until now. And now, Paul's going to talk about it some more. He's kind of like a broken record, right? And that's why he says, for me to write the same thing to you, it's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. In other words, he says, I know you think I sound like a broken record. I'm just, this is all I want to talk about, joy, 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 right? But I don't care. I don't care that I sound like a broken record. I'm going to keep talking about it and then I'm going to talk about it some more because it's important and I want to make sure that you get it. You see, good teachers repeat themselves a lot. Let me say that again. No, I'm just joking. Uh, The reason is because repetition is one of the best ways to help people remember something, help people learn something. I read a statistic this week, which is kind of disturbing for someone like me. It says this, that people remember 25% of what they hear if they hear it twice. If, that's a big if, right? So that's a bit disheartening for uh, a teacher, uh, a public speaker. You know, it's kind of like cry me a river, right? Like I prepared this message for like a week and you're only going to remember 25% if you happen to be taking notes right now, which I hope you are because I prepared this message for a week, and, or if you go home and, uh, and you listen to it again, right? So 25% if you hear it twice and if you don't, well then it's probably less. And that's why Paul says, I'm going to keep beating this drum because I'm not just going to say it twice. In fact, he says the word joy in this letter 18 times, right? Like he wants to make sure you don't miss this. Joy, 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 joy. Joy in the gospel. Find your joy not in your circumstances. Find your joy in the gospel. He wants to make sure this sinks in. He's going to keep beating this drum. To rejoice in the Lord. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means to make God the source of your greatest joy. To make God the source of your greatest joy. It means to look to Jesus as your all-satisfying, greatest treasure. Who he is, how he has loved you, what he has done for you, everything that that means for you. If you do that, if you make that your all-satisfying, greatest treasure, it will give you a bulletproof soul. Because even if you suffer the loss of all things, even if you suffer tragedy, tragic loss, even if you're thrown in jail, or even if you lose your life, It can never take away your greatest treasure, the source of your greatest joy, if that is in the gospel. In fact, all of those things will only bring you closer to that treasure, closer to that joy. Jim Elliott, he was a missionary in the 1950s to Ecuador, and he lost his life reaching out to people in the name of Jesus. But before he died, he wrote these very famous words in his journal. He said this, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life Your life is slipping between your fingers like sand. You ever tried to hold sand and it just slips away no matter how hard you try to hang on to a pile of sand? That's what life is like. You cannot keep anything in this world or in this life, but there is one thing which cannot be lost, which nothing can ever take away from you, which death will not separate you from, but will actually bring you closer to, and that is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so make that your greatest treasure. Make the gospel your greatest treasure, your all-satisfying greatest treasure. Give your life completely and wholly over to Him and to His service in everything that you do. I want you to notice this, that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, that is an imperative, meaning kind of a command, right? Do this. It's an imperative, and it's not an imperative to a feeling, like it's not saying feel happy, it's an imperative to do an action, an action, something that you do, not a feeling. Paul isn't commanding us to feel happy and to feel joyful. What he's commanding us to do is to do an action, to rejoice. That's an action. And what that means is that rejoicing in the Lord is an action that you can make a conscious decision to do or not do. Rejoicing in the Lord doesn't necessarily mean rejoicing over the bad things that happen to you, what it means is choosing to look to and celebrate who God is and what God has done even in the midst of whatever's going on in your life. I think about, uh, about, uh, I guess about a year, year and a half ago, I had this period of 10 months or so where I lost several friends, like several people in my life died. And it was, you know, it was like a lot of people in a short amount of time. And, you know, you come to the question, well, should I rejoice in the fact that these people died? Should I rejoice in the, their deaths? I mean, some of them left behind young children and, and spouses. I mean, that's not a good thing, is it, right? No, death is a thief. That's what the Bible tells us. Death is a curse, which Jesus came to abolish. So I don't rejoice in death itself, but yet I rejoice in the Lord in the midst of that. See, I can still find my source of hope in my joy in the gospel in fact I do so all the more when I'm faced with mortality I rejoice in the hope that I will be reunited with my believing friends who also look to Jesus as their greatest treasure I rejoice in knowing that although their death was lost for me and for other people who knew them it was gain for them see I can rejoice in the Lord that he comforts those who mourn that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble in other words no matter what circumstances we face We have reason to rejoice in the Lord, and to do so, it's not a matter of personality, right? Like, oh, I'm not the rejoicing type, I'm more the cynical type. No, it's not a matter of personality, it's not a matter of how you feel, it is actually a spiritual discipline that you are to choose to do. It is for your own health and well-being, and it is something that we must practice, it's something that we must cultivate in our lives, no matter what we may be facing or feeling in the moment. So let's go to verse 2, it says this, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul uses three terms here. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. But he's actually referring to one group of people. And they are the legalists. He's talking about legalists. And he tells the Philippians, watch out for these people. Be on guard against these people. Now the specific group that Paul is referring to here was a group known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Now legalism really is the idea that God accepts you and blesses you on the basis of what you do. In other words, your performance, how well you keep the rules or do these things. It's the idea that God deals with us based on what we might call the merit system. And legalism always results, by the way, in either self-righteousness or self-loathing and usually a fluctuation between the two. A fluctuation between self-righteousness when you're doing well and self-loathing when you fail. The problem of legalism is that it's not just a bad habit. The problem with legalism is that it's fundamentally opposed to the gospel message, which says that God doesn't deal with us on the basis of our own merits, but on the basis of His love for us and what Jesus did for us. In other words, legalism says salvation is a matter of addition and subtraction, right? It says that adding positive things to your life and subtracting the negative things. And if you do the good things and you subtract the bad things, then God will accept you and bless you and save you. So legalism says salvation is a matter of addition and subtraction, but the gospel says no. Salvation is not a matter of addition and subtraction. Salvation is a matter of substitution. The message of the gospel is that Jesus substituted himself for you, right? He gave his life As a ransom for you, he shed his blood for your sins. And your right standing before God isn't about adding certain things to your life or subtracting certain things to your life. It's about him substituting himself for you. The Judaizers, though, their particular brand of legalism was that they said, what Jesus did for you is good and all, right? Like it's a good start, but there's something you need to add to it. If you're a man, you have to be circumcised. Can you say, ouch, right? By the way, this is the way legalism always works. Legalism always says Jesus is great and all, but he's not good enough. There's something else. There's these other things that you need to add to it in order to earn your salvation. These Judaizers were very gung-ho about their message of Jesus plus circumcision as the way to be made right with God. The only thing is, that's a really hard sell when it comes to evangelism, right? Like imagine you're, uh, you're talking to some coworkers or your neighbors, right, about Jesus, and you're sharing the gospel with them, and you tell them, man, all you got to do to be forgiven, to be saved, to be made right with God, to have eternal life, all you got to do is just believe in the gospel and embrace Jesus as your Savior. And they're like, that's it. That's all I got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And be <coughs> circumcised. They'd be like, what? What Did you just say, and be circumcised? Yeah, but it's, really, it's not a big deal, man. In fact, you're really going to like it, right? No, uh, that's a hard sell. You can imagine that's a, that's a tough one to sell to people who aren't believers. And so what these Judaizers would do is they wouldn't try to convert unbelievers to Christianity. They would go to Christians and they would try to convert them from the gospel of grace to the gospel of Jesus plus circumcision. So circumcision, what was it? It was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was an outward mark that the descendants of Abraham would bear on their bodies that signified that they belonged to God. Now it was common in ancient times for a slave to be given a physical mark on their body to indicate whom they belonged to. And so circumcision had a very similar significance for the Jewish people. It was an intimate thing. But it was a constant reminder of who they belonged to, that they belonged to God. However, because circumcision was an outward mark on the body, it was completely possible to be circumcised outwardly, but to not actually be submitted to God in your heart. And so God told his people through the prophets that what he truly desired was not just outward circumcision. What he really desired was circumcision of the heart, not just of the body. And so when Christianity began to spread uh, through the world, the question was, do people need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And the apostles came to the conclusion that no, they don't. Because Jesus did everything that was necessary in order to save us, and we receive that by faith. Now, there's nothing else we need to do. Now, if you want to be circumcised, that's totally fine. Like, go ahead and get circumcised, but you don't have to be circumcised. And you can imagine, though, there weren't a whole lot of people lining up to get circumcised once they found out that it was totally optional. Now, I told you this quote last week, and it bears repeating. Here's the quote. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, and effort is an action. I'll say it again. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace as opposed to earning. And what that means is that obedience to God is not the same thing as legalism. But what the Judaizers were talking about, what legalism is all about, is about earning. It's about earning things from God, blessing, love, acceptance, favor, all of these things from God through your own performance. And that is in contradiction to the gospel. So Paul warns these Philippians, he says, Watch out for these people. They're traveling from church to church. If they show up in your church... Watch out, they're bad news. And he calls them some very unflattering names. He calls them dogs. Right, how many of you are dog lovers? See, the thing in the, uh, back in the day, Middle East, dogs were not considered nice pets to have. Dogs were considered dangerous scavengers who roamed the streets in packs. If you've ever been to developing countries, uh, you've seen the problems with street dogs. They're, uh, this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're dangerous. They carry diseases. You see, you hang out in the, those places for a while and you come back and you never want to have a dog again, right? And, and that's what Paul has in mind when he's referring to legalists as dogs. Right, this is a diss, right? It, but it's more than a diss. This is a double diss because the Jews also used to refer to the Gentiles as dogs. And so Paul is talking to Philippians who are, guess what? They're Gentiles. And he's saying, hey, you know these guys who keep calling you dogs? You know who the real dogs are? Them. Real mature, Paul. But we get the point right? They're, they're evil workers and they're, they're doing, they think they're doing God's work, but in the end they're teaching people to trust in their own righteousness instead of putting all of their trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. He says they are mutilators of the flesh. They're just hacking away at people. Like if you got in a fight with some farm equipment and you lost, right? They're misguided and they're dangerous, so watch out for them and don't buy what they're selling. Verse 3, He says, we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, these legalists think that they're super spiritual because they do all these things in their attempt to earn God's favor. But Paul says that's not what Real spirituality is about. That's not what true circumcision is. True circumcision is a matter of the heart, not of the flesh. And he says there are three things that characterize true spirituality. Number one, worshiping by the Spirit of God. Number two, glorying in Christ Jesus. And number three, putting no confidence in the flesh. So true spirituality is number one, worshiping by the Spirit of God as opposed to worshiping with merely outward formalities. The legalists tried to make spirituality a matter of outward ritual. Paul says, no, true circumcision is a matter of the heart. True spirituality is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. The second one is this, to glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I love this. See, I think if you really get this truth, it's absolutely revolutionary. For example, you might open your Bible and you might see that Jesus healed lepers those people whose lives were falling apart because of sin and you might think well hey if I'm going to be like Jesus well then what do I need to do I guess I need to do the things that he did so I need to go find people whose lives are falling apart because of sin and I need to touch their lives so that they can be healed and then I read a little bit further and I see that Jesus put his finger in the ear of a man who was born deaf and dumb and that Jesus healed a man who was born blind and, and these people were able to see and to hear. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be like Jesus, I need to find some people who can't hear. I need to find some people who can't see, people who are dumb and, and I need to touch their lives so that they can hear and they can see and their eyes can be opened. And, and then I read a little bit further and I see that Jesus, he fed the multitudes and say say hey, If I'm going to be like Jesus, I need to go out and I need to feed people. I need to feed the homeless. I need to feed anybody. I don't even care if they're hungry. I'm going to feed them because that's what Jesus would do. And I I read a little bit further and I see that Jesus blessed the little children. Well, what would Jesus do? I'm trying to be like Jesus, and so I think, well, if I'm going to be like Jesus, then I need to go. I need to go spend some time with some children, right? Even if I don't have children, I need to find some kids. I need to bless them. In fact, all the kids. I need to bless all the kids, all the time, wherever I can find them. I'm going to start a ministry to reaching out to children because that's what Jesus did. And if I'm going to be like him, that's the kind of stuff I need to do. And then I read a little bit further and I see that Jesus, he protected a woman who was caught in adultery. And they wanted to stone her to death while they let the guy who she was with get off scot-free. And I think, well, hey, if I'm going to be like Jesus... Well, then I better add this to my list of things that I need to do. My list is kind of getting long at this point, isn't it? But if I'm going to be like, Jesus, I need to protect people, and I need to fight against corruption, I need to fight against injustice, I need to fight against hypocrisy, and then I read a little further. And on and on it goes, building your list of all the things that you need to do in order to be like Jesus until, guess what? You become completely exhausted and overwhelmed. But let me tell you this, it is a great and wonderful day in your life when you realize that you are not Jesus. When you realize that to be a Christian doesn't mean that you are called to be the Savior of the world. It's a great and wonderful day when you can say what John the Baptist said when people asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, no, not me. No, but behold the Lamb of God, look at him, look at Jesus. It's not about me, it's about him. So in other words, if I'm not the Savior of the world then who am I? I am the leper. I am the leper. I am that person whose life was falling apart because of sin. When I read that story, don't read yourself as Jesus. Realize that that story is about you. You are the leper. Your life is falling apart because of sin. Jesus came to you and touched you and healed you and made you clean. I am the man born blind. I am the deaf man, the dumb man. I am the one who was not able to hear and not able to see. And Jesus came to me and he opened my eyes so that I could see. He opened my deaf ears so I could hear. I am the one who was caught in the very act of sin and stands to be judged. And Jesus came and advocated for me and he saved me. I am the poor man. I am the hungry man. Jesus came to me and gave me the bread of life. I am the child who Jesus blessed and spent time with and paid attention to see, when you come to this realization that the message of the gospel is not what you need to do for God, but it is what God has done for you in Christ, when you understand that, then rather than glorying in your own goodness, rather than glorying in what you do, you begin to glory in Christ Jesus and what he has done for you. And this is such an important point, Paul says, this is real spirituality. Not glorying in who you are and what you do, but glorying in who he is and what he has done for you. And the third one is this, putting no confidence in the flesh. The truly spiritual person trusts not in themselves, but trusts in Jesus and what he has done for them. They don't trust in their own performance record. They trust in Jesus and what he did for them. Now, Paul is going to begin talking about how he himself actually used to think the way that the legalists think, but how he came to change his mind in that regard. And that brings us to our second point, the work beneath our work. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, look, I used to think the way that they think. I built my identity. I found my greatest joy in my own accomplishments, in who I was, in what I had done, in my performance record, and I had really good credentials. Let me tell you what they were, and he's gonna tell us. He says, these are probably the best credentials that you could even imagine. He says in verse five, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What that means is that Paul was not a proselyte. He didn't convert to Judaism later in life, but he was born and raised in it. Secondly, he says, I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a tribe which gave Israel its first king. The name of that king? Saul. What was Paul's Hebrew name? Saul, right? Remember, the, the holy city of Jerusalem was found within the territories of the tribe of Benjamin. So this was a prestigious thing to be of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews See, in that day, uh, many of the Jews of that time had been influenced greatly by what's called Hellenization, which means that they spoke Greek, they dressed like Greeks. Religiously, they were still Jews, but culturally, they had conformed to the prevalent culture of that day, which was Greek. But there were some Jews out there who didn't do that. They were old school. They were like the Amish, right? They were the Hebraic Jews. They were old school. They spoke Hebrew, they practiced all the ancient customs, they still dressed in the Hebrew way. And Paul was one of those guys. He's saying, hashtag old school, hashtag hardcore, that's me, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to Pharisee, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The the Pharisees were the strictest sect of Judaism. There were only a few thousand of them at most. It was a very elite and prestigious thing to be numbered among the Pharisees. Their nickname was the Separated Ones. They were kind of like the rock stars of Judaism, right? Like if you were a Jewish kid and you're at the airport and you see one of these Pharisees, you're going to go and uh, take your photo with them. You're going to have him uh, autograph your dreidel or something, right? Because they were, uh, it was a big deal to be a Pharisee. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zeal was the highest single virtue of the Jewish faith. Zeal And what zeal means, it meant simultaneous love and hate. It meant that you loved your religion so much that you hated anything that threatened it. And that's why Paul became a persecutor of Christianity because he was so zealous for his Jewish faith. The only problem was after a while, he came to find that his zeal was misdirected and he was actually fighting against God. But he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. All 613 laws and the laws, law of Moses, he kept them all. He was a rule keeper. These are the things that Paul used to find his identity in. This was his greatest joy. His greatest joy in the whole world was his resume, what he could throw down on the table, his credentials, his performance record to prove that he was a good person. In fact, he's probably better than anybody else. That was his greatest treasure. And he believed that because of these things, God loved him and God accepted him. You see, for many of us, there is work beneath our work. Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean is this. There is an underlying motivation which drives us to do the things that we do. In other words, we don't just do the things we do for the sake of doing the thing that we're doing. There's an underlying motivation. There's something else that we're really trying to attain by doing that thing. For Paul, think about this. He was so zealous about Judaism. Why? Was it just because he loved the law, he loved the Lord so much? What he's saying here is no, that's not all it was. There was a work beneath that work. The reason he was so zealous for Judaism was because he was desperately trying to prove himself to others and Judaism was just the tool that he was using to do that. And if you think about it, many of us, the same could be said of us. How many of us overwork, not because we love our job, Not because we necessarily need more money, but because at the end of the day, we want to prove that we really are somebody, that that we really are significant, that we are good. And so we want to prove something about ourselves, and we do it through our job. Or, Or here's another one How many people try to be perfect parents, right? Like Pinterest, perfect. And the reason is not even so much about their kids at all, is it? It's more about trying to prove something about themselves to other people through the things that they're doing, that they really are a good enough person, that they really, their life really does have purpose and meaning and value, that they really do deserve love and attention. Now think about it. What is the underlying work behind your work? What is it that motivates and drives you? What the Bible tells us is that one of the greatest problems we have as human beings is that we try to build our identity not on who we are before God, but on our own accomplishments. Rather than finding our satisfaction and our greatest joy in God, we seek to find it in our own accomplishments. And the result of that, for many of us, is that we are driven, we are motivated by fear. A fear of failure, a fear of losing what we have, a fear of insignificance. I I read an excerpt from an article in which Madonna, the pop legend, was being interviewed by Vanity Fair magazine. And she was talking about this very thing. Listen to what Madonna says about what drove her in her career. She says, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer my horrible feelings of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and then I discover myself as a special human being but then I get to another stage and I feel that again I am mediocre, I am uninteresting. And again and again. She says, My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's what's always pushing me and pushing me because even though I feel like I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. What Madonna is admitting to here is that there is a work beneath her work. She doesn't just do the things that she does because she loves doing them, right? The driving force behind her quest for success is not joy, It's fear. Although she's hugely successful, her life has not been characterized by love and joy. It's been characterized by fear. see, if you build your life on, if you build your identity on your accomplishments, if you find your greatest joy in anything in this world that can be lost, then your life will be characterized by pride and by fear. Pride because of what you've attained and fear over losing it. See, that's what Paul experienced as well before he came to understand the gospel. But check out what Paul says next in verse 7. "'Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish.'" in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Compared to the joy of knowing Jesus and being found in him, compared to the righteousness of Jesus, which is credited to his account freely, compared to the surpassing worth of these things, Paul looks at his resume, his performance record, and he throws it in the trash. No matter how good his record was, and it was pretty good by human standards, it was rubbish. It was rubbish compared to Jesus' righteousness. Paul uses some accounting terms here in verse 7. He says, The things which I used to consider assets, I now realize that they are my liabilities. I used to think that I was in the black before God, but now I come to realize that I'm so much in the red, so much in the red that I need the red blood of Jesus to be applied to my ledger. He says, the very credentials that some people are, are waving around as something special. I'm tearing those things up. I'm throwing them in the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. He says, I don't want to build my own identity. I don't want to find my greatest joy in what I can produce or earn. I want to find it in what Jesus did for me. In fact, this word rubbish in the original text is actually a little bit stronger. You know, when they translated the Bible into English, they did not want to be crass. They don't want to offend people. But in, in doing so, they kind of took out the, the teeth of the, what he's actually saying here. That he toned it down a little bit. In Greek, in the original text, the word Paul uses here is the word for excrement. It's dung. His achievements, his credentials, he used to consider them his pride and his joy, but now he considers them excrement compared to what Jesus has offered him in the gospel. Not only worthless, but offensive. He says, I've been striving for years to prove myself, to build my identity, to find my greatest joy in how much better I was than everybody else out there, but I don't want that anymore. I, I want to be found in Christ with a righteousness that's not my own, with a righteousness that comes through faith, In Him, And this brings us to our third and final point, which is real rest. To be found in Christ means that because of what Jesus did for you, when you put your faith in Him, when you embrace the gospel, that in God's eyes you are hidden in Christ. You are found in Him. And when God looks at you, He doesn't see your accomplishments, your performance records, but He sees Jesus' accomplishments on your behalf. Jesus' righteousness. And what that means for you and me practically is that If that is true, then we can rest. We can rest from the work beneath our work. We can rest from trying to prove ourselves. We can rest from trying to build our identity and find our joy in our accomplishments. We can rest from fear. See, the message of the gospel is that Jesus substituted himself for you. Jesus suffered the restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the rest that comes from knowing that God loves us and accepts us and our sins have been forgiven. And when you really get that, When you really understand that to the point where you embrace that as your greatest treasure, your all-satisfying greatest treasure, then you find in Him your greatest joy. And when you find your identity in Him, when you find your greatest joy in Him because of what He has done for you, then you will have real rest. Paul says, Everything that was gained to me, I counted all as loss. i throw it all in the trash. I would give it all up in a heartbeat in order that I might gain Christ." and be found in him, not with a righteousness of my own, but that which comes from Christ and is given to me by faith. Remember what I said earlier? Jim Elliot, he said, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus told a parable, one of my favorite parables, actually, in Matthew chapter 13. Very short, he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. The man sold everything that he had. He sold his car. He craigslisted his TV and his Xbox. He gave away, he sold his gear for all his hobbies. He sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field. And after he did that, after he bought that field, which had that treasure hidden in it, do you suppose what he was thinking was, man, I really miss my stuff. I really miss all that stuff I gave up. No way. You know what he was thinking? I can't believe it. I have found the greatest treasure in the world, and it's mine. What's interesting about this parable, one of the reasons I love it so much, is because it can be understood in two ways. In fact, I think that Jesus purposefully did this with several of his parables, that they can be understood in more than one way and have different levels of meaning. On the one hand... The gospel, our salvation, a relationship with God, eternal life, that is the greatest treasure that this world has ever known compared to which everything else is is rubbish in comparison, right? There's nothing that wouldn't be worth giving up in order to take hold of that treasure. But on the other hand, this is what Jesus did for us. He looked on me, he looked on you as a treasure for which he was willing to give up everything. And he ransomed you he paid the price at the greatest cost of shedding his own blood giving his own life in order that he might take hold of you so which is it is it that he's the treasurer is it that he saw us as the treasure and gave everything is it that he's the treasure and we need to give everything it's both see that's the beauty of this Jesus gave up everything in order to take hold of you to redeem you to save you to make you his own and what he did for you what he offers you is such a great treasure that it is worth giving everything for. And if you will make Him your all-satisfying, greatest treasure, if you will glory in Him and put no confidence in the flesh and be found in Him, He will give you a new identity and it will be for you an indestructible source of joy and real rest for your soul. And all of that can be yours. It will be yours if you embrace today the gospel. And that's what I want you to do today. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time, embrace the gospel and give all of yourself to him who gave himself for you. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this message of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for this great treasure. And I pray that truly we would see you for the great treasure that you are. And Lord, that we would be willing to give everything, but not just because that's how we earn it in some way. No, quite the opposite. Lord, because you looked on us and considered us enough treasure that you would give yourself in order to ransom us, in order to purchase us. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. May we glory not in who we are and what we do. May we glory in Christ Jesus. May we put no confidence in the flesh. And thank you for the gospel. And may we be found in you with a righteousness that's not ours, but the, with a righteousness that comes from you. And I pray for anyone here today who hasn't ever taken that step really of saying, yes, I embrace the gospel as my own. I, I would give anything that I might have that treasure. Lord, I pray that they would make that decision right now. Lord, we pray for our lives that you'd help us to walk in light of the fact that you have given us the greatest treasure the world has ever known. And we bless you and pray that as we go from here, you let our hearts be filled with the confidence that comes from the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.